Welcome and thank you for standing by. All participants will be on a listen-only mode for the duration of today's call. During the Q&A session, please press star 1. I'll mute your line. Record your first and last name and your affiliation. I'd now like to introduce Honorable Director and President and CEO of the Wilson Center, Jane Harmon. Thank you, Operator, and uh, good afternoon uh, to most of the people on this call. Good morning to me. I'm in the more western parts of the United States. I hope wherever you're joining from uh, the U.S., Canada, or any place else, you are staying safe. Uh, no one is missing the, the disturbing news about this pandemic, and please, please, please uh, stay safe. Uh, so thank you for tuning into the Wilson Center's 164th Ground Truth Briefing. I'm not making this up, a 164th Ground Truth Briefing. For those uh, novices on the call, uh, Ground Truth Briefings are where we discuss hot issues with people who come from uh, the hot spots we're discussing, uh, and they join with uh, some of our policy directors or other scholars at the Wilson Center, and we have been able to uh, bring uh, 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 cutting-edge uh, information in great depth to our many listeners. And, oh, by the way, during this pandemic, when we are mostly on enhanced telework, uh, most of our, all of our events are virtual, and our listening public has just mushroomed. And it's a credit to those uh, at the Wilson Center and those guests, like the one I will mention in a minute. So today's topic is Ground Truth Briefing, Canada at the United Nations, What Next?, a conversation with Canada's new ambassador to the UN, Bob Ray. As those of us in the foreign policy community know, you can't tackle global issues without a global, uh, at least intersecting those from the global community and hopefully fashioning a global response. But as we have come to learn, even in the midst of this prolonged pandemic, international coordination and collaboration has been hard to come by. Yet, Canada continues to be an example of global outreach and coordination, and that's what we'll discuss today. In addition to working with the United States to close their border, not totally, but just to non-essential travel while keeping supply chains active, the Ottawa government recently managed to put in place a new NAFTA, or USMCA, along with Mexico and Washington. Uh, we've had a couple of conversations in depth about that. But not all initiatives have gone smoothly. What mainly occupies the thoughts of the foreign policy-minded Canadians today is the Trudeau, the Trudeau government's failure to gain a non-permanent seat on the UN Security Council, coming up 20 votes short on June 17 and losing to Ireland and Norway. When he first took office five years ago, Prime Minister Trudeau declared that Canada would pursue the seat this year putting his country back uh, on the Security Council for the first time in 20 years after conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper's failed bid in 2010. But now both political parties have come up short in seeking a position that Canada had held at least once every decade since the Security Council's creation in 1945. The result has prompted soul-searching in Canada, which is rethinking its role in the in world order um, uh, note from Jane Harmon, please don't. <laughs> but there is reason to be optimistic. Inside and especially outside of the UN, 
Ottawa has plenty of class, as we shall hear today. The Wilson Center's Canada Institute, unique in Washington, has done an excellent job covering these developments, and today we are proud to host Ambassador Bob Ray, who was just named Canada's newest ambassador to the UN. His former Premier of Ontario from 1990 to 95, interim leader of the Liberal Party from 2011 to 2013, Special Envoy to Myanmar, uh, 2017 and Special Envoy on Humanitarian Refugee Issues from 2020. He embodies Canada's commitment to tackling urgent global problems. We welcome Ambassador Ray back to the Wilson Center, where he last spoke on October, in October 2018 on North America's energy future, and we look forward to hearing his take on Canada's contribution to the UN and his vision for future international engagement. Moderating our conversation with Ambassador Ray is our very own, uh, fairly newly minted Chris Sands, who is director of our Canada Institute. Special thanks to you, Chris, and your team for continuing to put together excellent events and research in these difficult times. So please join me in welcoming Canada uh, Director Chris Sands. Thank you very much, Jane. I, I appreciate your support, and I appreciate your vision in keeping the Canada Institute a central part of the Woodrow Wilson Center's global programs. Um, I, I also can say that on this particular occasion, I have some experience hosting uh, Bob Ray, our uh, speaker today. When I was just starting at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, we had a chance to host uh, then Premier Ray for a conversation uh, on uh, Kent, on Ontario and free trade, and uh, I remember uh, turning to you, Mr. Ray, uh, a particular anecdote that you have real history in Washington. Uh, at one time, you had a paper route uh, and delivered newspapers to Vice President Nixon. Is that right? Absolutely right, Chris. And uh, thanks to you and Jane for such a warm welcome. Yeah, my my dad was appointed minister. Uh, to Washington in the fall of 1956. Um, and I can well re vividly remember driving down in uh, our old Ford uh, down to Washington, the whole family packed in. Um, and uh, it was a six a very, very interesting years. Uh, I was eight when I got there and 14 when I left. It was a fascinating time to be in, the, in D.C., and yes, indeed, uh, Mr. Nixon was a customer of mine. His daughter Julie was at uh, went to primary school with me, public school at Horace Mann Public School, uh, right across from American University. I'm sure some of your listeners, if they're in Washington, will will know exactly the area I'm talking about. And um, yeah, Washington was uh, was a great place to live for for six years. And uh, we were there during the election of President Kennedy. And, and uh, we left in the summer of 62 when my dad became ambassador to the UN in Geneva. Uh, so I, I had four very tough high school years in Geneva. Very difficult. Wow. Um, I, have, I have to ask, as a former uh, paper route holder myself, um, was uh, Vice President Nixon a good tipper? Uh, not particularly. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't. I've, I've told this story many times, but the Senator Kefauver was also on my list, uh, and we used to go by the Kefauver residence. It was after six o'clock was usually a good idea, and, um, uh, and Senator Kefauver was always generous, particularly with Christmas calendars. So we had a 
I think I got a $20 tip from Senator Kefauver and let's just say somewhat less from the, from Mr. Nixon. <laughs> Wonderful. That's, uh, you really do have roots in this uh, Washington, D.C. community, and, and it, it's good to also remember that your father was at the United Nations. How is it for you preparing to, to go to the United Nations now, and um, does his involvement in any way, did it help convince you that this was the job for you now? Sure. I mean, both my mom and dad, they were very much a partnership. Uh, they, my dad was a diplomat for 40 years. He, he started his public service career working with George Gallup. Uh, he went to uh, work at the, uh, at the Gallup Institute in Princeton, um, and he wrote a book with Dr. Gallup on uh, polling. My dad was, a, was an early student of polling and uh, public opinion, and, uh, and then he joined, he, he became a diplomat in 1940, um, and sure, I mean, I grew up in a diplomat in, in an internet, you know, that whole environment of public service and international engagement. So yeah, when Mr. Trudeau asked me to do this job, which um, frankly came as a bit of a surprise to me, it was not something I was expecting. Um, it didn't take me very long to accept. It was, I would think, about half a second, <laughs> and I felt very much that it was. Um, it was something that I that I felt I could make a contribution to. That I had spent a lot of my time not only in politics but also in as a student of foreign policy and a practitioner. Work I've done at a, an NGO called the Forum of Federations. Done a lot of work with um, the National Democratic Institute and other um, institutions on governance around the world. So yeah, this was a this was a moment where I felt I could contribute. And obviously, the the COVID crisis was the final final clincher for me that I really did feel that this is going to be a challenge for the world and I was very glad to to be putting my shoulder to the wheel. Well, you raised the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and I think that's a great place to start um, because at least in Washington, there's been a, a great focus on the World Health Organization, part of the UN system and how well or not well it's performed. Um, how do you feel? How do you feel about the World Health Organization, and is it is it worth revising, rebuilding, or or can it be reformed in some way? And can Canada help? Well, first of all, I mean, every institution in the world is going to have to look at itself in terms of its response to the pandemic. We're still in the middle of the pandemic, um, and I think there are a lot of issues that that we need to look at in terms of the adequacy, the speed, uh, the the, the nature of the various influences at work. Um, I think historically the WHO has done a remarkable job. Um, I think the WHO has provided uh, strong leadership uh, in in this particular crisis. But I think the thing we have to remember is that you know the WHO, like the UN, is not a world government. Uh, whatever its critics might say, it doesn't. It, it works through sovereign governments, which interpret their advice and their, you know, whatever they, they say about issues. Um, it relies on voluntary contributions uh, to its budget. Um, and uh, I, I don't think we need a weaker WHO. I think we need a stronger one. Um, and and I, it, it's pretty hard to keep politics out of any international organization. Um, but I do think the, the kind of independent review that 
that I know the WHO has already called for and uh, that there are moves afoot to have that done. Uh, I hope it's not intended to be looking for um, victims. I hope it's intended to be looking for advice about how to improve things in the future. And I think I think there's a lot to be improved. I don't want to get involved in the internal politics of the United States, but certainly the position of the government of Canada is very clear. We will not be uh, in any way, shape, or form reducing our commitments to the WHO. We, we are going to remain very engaged in trying to uh, keep the organization in, in good shape. Um, in that regard, how do you think the COVID-19 pandemic uh, challenges international institutions, not just the WHO, but others in the UN system? And is the UN a place to coordinate responses across the many countries that are part of its, uh, its membership? Well, the UN is one of the places where it has to happen. Um, not, certainly not the only place. Um, I think Jane mentioned in her opening remarks and, and your question the same uh, it is a global crisis, and it's having a very significant impact on every country in the world. Um, it, I don't. I think of COVID-19 as being more of a revealer than a leveler. A lot of people use the language of leveling, saying it's you know we're all the same, we're all equal. Well, actually, we're we're not, and um, <laughs> I think COVID has revealed that. And I think the countries that are fragile. The countries that are having great deal of difficulty with um, their internal governance, countries that are 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 poor, um, are are going to are being made more poor by virtue of what's happened for a whole variety of reasons. And and so I I think the global system, insofar as we can say the global system, the relationships between the countries in the world, the operations of the World Bank, the, the IMF, the other UN agencies and institutions, are are being dramatically affected and are going to be even more dramatically affected by, by the, by the impact of COVID, not just the health impacts, but the economic and social. And now we see clearly the financial impacts countries having to renegotiate their debt, um, serious structural problems in many economies uh, and humanitarian crises, the likes of which we haven't seen since the end of the second world war. Absolutely. There, there's, there's some interesting parallels with another world crisis that uh, we've, been, we've been dealing with in the last few years, also with the UN very much at the fore, and that's climate change. Um, the, earlier this spring, the, uh, the British who were hosting COP26 or planning to host COP26 in November in Glasgow uh, agreed to postpone the meeting until next year. How important do you think the UN uh, work on climate change has been, and as difficult as it is, do you see the the hope of a consensus and maybe getting back to some of the success we had with Paris and and maybe moving forward even further? Well, I sure hope so. Uh, I I do consider the, the 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 global pandemic does have its parallels with respect to climate change. We can't deal with the impact of climate change unless we come up with with global uh, approaches. Um, they also have to be local and national approaches. And uh, I just think the reality is, is that unless everyone gets involved, uh, we're not going to find a, uh, a series of measures uh, that are, are going to be adequate to deal with the extent of, um, of the impact of climate change. I do hope that uh, just as COVID-19 has revealed 
the challenges that each one of us faces, uh, I do think that the the amount of, of of work, of publicity, of information, of education, of awareness uh, about climate change is growing every day. Uh, and with that, I think the demands for action from people around the world is going to grow. Um, but the problem with climate change as, a, as an issue is that it, 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 it's a cumulative problem. And so it, it, it may, it, I hope it doesn't, but it may take a very significant crisis for countries to finally get the message, to finally get galvanized into taking the necessary steps. Absolutely. And I, and I think Canada could be a leader in that, given that uh, as, you, uh, as you've experienced inside Canada, there are often debates about uh, among the provinces and at the federal government level over who should do what to address climate change. You, you, anytime you, you led Canada, you've come away with an experience as a negotiator uh, that's pretty world-class. Do you think there, there can be uh, common ground, uh, maybe with Canada helping to find it in, in on climate change? Well, I think the point, I hope so. I hope we can contribute. I mean, I, I think the point is nobody enters a climate change discussion as a, as a saint, <laughs> you know, either as an individual or as a, as a country uh, or as a business. We, we all have, um, have done things and we've all produced things and we've all embraced um, parts of the resource sector and the economic sectors that um, that need to change and changing them is going to be difficult um, it, it, I think we've also learned a bit about how to how to strike targets that are realistic and doable and workable um, and the scientists will have one view and 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 quite rightly so they will have very strong opinions and then there will be others who will say yes but what about the economy and how do we make these economic changes work um, and ultimately, the decisions are going to be political. Ultimately, uh, the politicians of the world and, and their representatives are going to have to come together and figure out a way to find a, a, a work, series of workable solutions. Uh, and it, it is going to be a, a, um, a, an issue that will be with us um, for many, many decades. And we need to understand its implications and, and who, who's paying the price for it now. Um, and it ties into the real world of development as well. I mean, I think uh, it would be a pity if we didn't take advantage of this current COVID crisis and in the rebuild exercise be building in some elements that clearly link it to, um, to climate change, clearly link it to the need for new technologies and for new approaches to those technologies. I think that's an excellent point. We're talking with Bob Ray, Canada's new ambassador to the United Nations. I want to remind our listeners that to join the question queue, press star 1 on your phone, and uh, you can get in a question. We'll come to questions, but I want to follow up on one very um, interesting kind of issue that could come out of either COVID or climate change, and that is the situation of refugees. The UN has been a leader since the end of World War II in trying to protect the rights of refugees and stateless peoples. We're facing significant refugee crises in Venezuela here in the Western Hemisphere, in Syria still. Um, Canada's also been one of the more generous countries in accepting refugees. How do you think 
we should improve on that record? What more can we do on refugees? And do you think that there's a risk that uh, we may see COVID refugees as people look for health care that they can't find at home or, or even climate refugees looking for a new place to live because their livelihood has been affected by climate change? Well, you have a great question. I mean, my, my friends in the, in the international humanitarian law community would want me to draw a very you know, strong line between refugees and those who are displaced and migrants. Um, but I only say that because I actually don't agree that those lines are, are as easy to draw as they might have been at one time. Um, we, you know, the estimates are that there are more than 100 million people who are, who are displaced either internally within countries or um, globally, um, not all of whom are technically refugees, uh, people who are um, oppressed and, and seeking um, uh, shelter from uh, from internal repression, uh, rep- political repression of some kind or another, but the the, the issue of migration and displacement is is huge, and it definitely COVID will make it more serious. Definitely climate change is making it more serious, uh, and uh, definitely we need <laughs> we need to galvanize ourselves into action. We the globe successfully met the challenge of the the post-1945 displacement and refugee crisis. Um, It took took more than a decade. It took um, us up into the early 60s. Um, And since that time, we've had several new crises have emerged, but none more serious than the one we're facing now. Um, The numbers that we're looking at are are daunting. Um, And I think it's important that we look at resettlement as part of the part of the answer, but not the only answer. Um, part of the answer is finding the political solutions to the issues that have given rise to the refugee crisis. I mean, in many many countries in Africa and Venezuela, for you, you mentioned in the Americas, um, the Rohingya crisis, which I'm quite familiar with in in, uh, in Myanmar and in Bangladesh. Um, the answer to these issues is not simply going to be, let's get all these people resettled uh, in Europe and North America or around the world, however we decide to do it. Uh, there will always be an opportunity for that in terms of resettlement. I know Canada's uh, committed to maintaining its stance that it believes in, in the resettlement of refugees and accepting refugees as a huge plus for, for our society. Um, but we've got to look fundamentally, we've got to look at what it, what is the, what are the reasons for these for this displacement, what has happened to create it, and what can we do to uh, to deal with the consequences of that, and and to deal with the underlying issues underneath? I think this is a huge issue for the UN generally. Obviously, the UNHCR, the IOM, the UNICEF, the other organizations that are part of the UN are are going to be very much engaged in the discussion around what needs to happen. We have the two global compacts, one on migration, one on refugees. But we need to improve the the ways in which we implement those compacts and how we work with the agencies to to get them done. And and the other thing we need to do is work with refugees themselves. My time in in the Rohingya camp has really affected my thinking about refugees. We need to recognize that they they very quickly develop political institutions inside the camps. They very quickly develop uh, 
a sense of what they want to do. Their voices need to be heard more clearly. We need to listen to their voices, not think of them as just, you know, the displaced or the anonymous uh, people that we see on, in posters and on and on our video screens. We, we need to understand these are people with real issues, with real abilities, with real backgrounds, knowledge. Uh, they're human beings who need to find their place in the world. And, and, and we, we, through the UN and other agencies, we have a we have an obligation to listen to them. How, how do you how do you navigate the tricky relationship between people who are clearly oppressed or or under duress, with whom it's easy to sympathize, and then at a place like the United Nations, dealing with the leaders of the government that are doing the repression? And this has been a problem for the UN dealing with human rights and other issues. Um, how, how do you talk to a Nicolas Maduro or or to the, the junta in Myanmar or or to the Syrian government at the UN uh, when you're also trying to deal with some of the tragedies that they themselves have contributed to? Well, first of all, the, the first thing you do is you talk. Uh, you don't not talk. Um, you engage. Uh, and at the same time, you speak. Their talking implies that you're also going to be talking. And we need to speak candidly about this question. There's a There's a significant growth in authoritarian populism around the world. Um, Canada certainly is not going to be silent about that, about the impact of this on um, on civil liberties and on on the, the condition of, of, of humanity. Um, and we can't remain silent on it because um, we are, like all countries, we're immediately impacted by it, um, by its effects. So I, I don't think we should be shy about describing it, but I think we also have to recognize that most of the member states in the United Nations or the member states that, that um, represent the, the majority populations in the world are not necessarily democratic in, in every respect, and, and there are significant issues within almost every country. I mean, one of the things that Mr. Trudeau did that I really admired was when he went down to the UN for the first time, he, he spoke a lot about Canada's indigenous people and about the relationship between uh, our history as a, as a product of, of colonialism and, and uh, the imperial combat of the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries and the impact that it had on the indigenous population in Canada. Um, not something you expect every leader to do, to go down and say, this is, here's our problem, here's our problem. I think the reason that he did it uh, was because he wanted to show <laughs> that we're not afraid to talk about our problems. And we don't go into these discussions with a claim to be perfect or a claim to say, you know, everybody should be just like us. Uh, you go into these discussions with humility, but nevertheless um, try to be as candid as you can about the consequences of of uh, failing to respect the, the dignity of of every human being. And I think a lot of what we're seeing in the world today is is uh, you know it, 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 it's a time that calls for candor, and and but that candor doesn't imply that you just criticize others. The candor implies you, you really want to try and engage with people about how to how to improve the human condition. I, I appreciate that, and and in the spirit of candor and willingness to engage, just want to remind our our listeners 
If you dial star one on your phone, you can enter the Q&A queue, and we'll go to questions from our our listeners um, in just a few minutes. You raised the issue of indigenous people, or I guess Prime Minister Trudeau raised the issue of indigenous people of the United Nations. The UN also has a declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples, and and I think Canada is committed to implementing that. Um, How important do you think that UN declaration is, and, and does it go far enough? Well, I think the movement that gave rise to the declaration is historically very important. Um, the, the process of decolonization, which really uh, was the story of the United Nations post-1945, right up until the present day, uh, pro- you know, produced a number of nation states that, uh, that have taken their place in the world. Um, but it left a legacy of... Uh, indigenous people around the world that were underrepresented, uh, that did not have enough of a voice, and that felt they had a, a, a common aspiration and cause that needed to find its place. And and the the UN, it, it, despite the the concern of a great many countries um, that were not happy about uh, this process, uh, the UN persisted, and the indigenous leadership around the world persisted, and. Uh, has produced, a, I think, a, a, a document that represents those aspirations um, very well. It, it will, frankly, be entirely up to uh, this continuing movement of Indigenous people uh, around the world to um, to decide on what are the next steps. Uh, how is the implementation going in a number of countries? Uh, what's the process? But I... I uh, I, I think it's an it's an extraordinarily important part of the human rights story of of the not only of the United Nations but of 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 all the global peoples, recognizing that um, indigenous people have paid a very heavy price for the um, for the global process of for the process of globalization that's gone on since since the 15th century. So I think that's that's been an important message for me certainly. One that I've been done my best as a as a citizen, as a as a teacher, and as a lawyer to 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 try and understand and to um, and to deal with in in the Canadian context. I'm looking forward to learning more about it in the global context. Well, and that's something that I think uh, not everyone knows about you. When you left public life in 2013, you really devoted yourself to dealing with Aboriginal issues as a lawyer. Um, why did you make that choice, and, and how have you uh, how have you seen it, the situation in Canada improving uh, since you since you took that on? Well, I did. I mean, I did it quite deliberately. I did it because I felt at that time that it was an area that I'd long been interested in. Like my political life, I'd done a lot of work in the field. I'd done a lot of work in constitutional negotiation. I, I've I've always been a, uh, a his, sort of an amateur historian. Um, and as a lawyer, I was very interested in how it how it would work its way through. Um, and I was been involved in some you know, some very contentious negotiations and difficult discussions uh, on behalf of Indigenous clients. Uh, and I've, I've I've learned a tremendous amount. I mean, I I've also learned how much I don't know, <laughs> which is an important an important thing to learn. Um, and and my my. Uh, Education is still very much ongoing in that regard. But in terms of the Canadian story um, and the narrative of our own country, I do feel it's, it's, it's a huge piece of, 
of unfinished business. I mean, we, we talk about the, the Canadian phrase we use is reconciliation. Uh, and the, word, the process of reconciliation is still very much an ongoing one. It's, it's really in its early days yet because um, the, the process that we call truth and reconciliation has started, uh, sort of officially started 10 or 15 years ago. And it's, it's now taken us to the point where um, governments are making more and in some cases better decisions, but there's still um, a ton of work to do. Um, and, and again, I think this is something which we share with a number of other countries and the politics of every country are different, but, uh, in the United States, for example, you can't help but notice that the, the jurisdiction with the largest number of COVID-19, uh, deaths, um, is the Navajo nation in, in the Western United States. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a reason to, ref, that's cause to reflect on, on the condition of indigenous people everywhere. I think I think it is, and I'm glad you you raised that. Um, Jane Harmon uh, is is here, and, and I would and she wanted to ask a question. Jane, can I turn it to you? Uh, thank you, Chris, and thank you, Bob. That was uh, an extraordinarily wide ranging uh, conversation, and boy, uh, it sounds like you will be bringing a boatload of background to the UN, uh, an institution that needs the best and the brightest at this point, because it, it faces its own challenges, as you were both saying. Um, and one comment about that, uh, uh, Kelly, uh, Kelly Kraft, who is our new ambassador to the UN and was our ambassador to Canada, has become a, a good friend of the Wilson Center, and she did observe uh, just last week that she will keep an eye out for Canada, so you will have a good new friend when you arrive. So here's my question. Um, when I was introducing this, I mentioned that Stephen Harper, the conservative leader of Canada uh, back in the day, I remember interviewing him uh, at the Wilson Center for about an hour, and it was a very engaging interview. Anyway, Stephen Harper and now Justin Trudeau both supported Canada's uh, um, um, uh, participation on the Security Council, and both lost. Uh, I am a, a recovering politician, as I think you know. I know the audience does. I served for nine terms in Congress, and so I, I always notice political leadership. I find this unusual, that two leaders with very opposite views would have pushed for the same result, and neither one of them would have gotten there. And I just wonder if you have any observations about uh, this. Um, it may just be an accident, but it seems you know unusual that this could have happened. Um, well, first of all, I don't think it's an, I don't think it's an, an accident. Uh, in the sense that I think the challenge that Canada's faced now for the last um, 25, 30 years has been a uh, a lot of a lot of shifting around in the global in the global context. I mean, we are we initially in the United Nations, a relatively small number of countries. We were uh, obviously a country that was, was had survived the had survived the Second World War without being invaded. We were in a strong position. Um, we were we very quickly be, became very adept at, at working through international institutions, the UN, NATO, our relationship with the United States, and so on. And you know we very we very, we, we assumed a leadership position. 
Uh, and I think that the world has become much more complex. I mean, the UN now is 193 countries. Um, we're not a member of any real – we're a member of all the blocs, and we're not a member of any of them in a sense. You know, we our constituency to get on the Security Council is is uh, Western Europe and other, other countries. So, uh, you know, we're Europe and others. So we're kind of not part of any – any group that we can be assured of, yeah, if, you know, if you get, we'll, we'll make you our candidate for this and so on. Um, it was clear, I think, uh, we were not, we ran against our two two good friends and allies, the, the Irish and the Norwegians, um, and, and the Europeans were very much behind them, and, and uh, they had a they had an earlier start than we did in the race, um, and we didn't win. I mean, yeah, Jane, you and I both, I, I was elected 11 times. You were elected nine. Uh, you know, you 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 don't look back and say, you, know, you find after you've lost an election, everybody says, oh, it's all over for you. And I've lost a few, and uh, I managed to always make some kind of a comeback. Uh, I, I don't think Canada should over-interpret, over-read or over-interpret this result. Um, I don't think it's a reflection of our standing in the world. I think we... What can I say? We lost an election. It's, we didn't get enough votes. Uh, and it's, you can imagine a secret ballot the UN with 193 countries. Um, I know for a fact that we all, we thought we had more votes than we ended up getting. So not everybody at the doorstep tells you what they're going to do. <laughs> we, we found the same experience was true in this case. I, I hope we don't... Um, languish in any kind of self-pity about it you know we lost it we lost it there's a ton of work to do we're in the middle of a COVID crisis uh there's a ton of problems in the world that we need to be involved in helping to helping to solve so i think we've just got to get on with it and 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 think think through learn lessons learned have to go through that process of learning why it happened um there'll be lots of explanations but i i I'm much more of the view that we've got to we've got to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves up and and uh, start all over again. Yeah. Well, let me just say that you will have a close friend in Kelly Craft. There's no question about it, and that I really applaud that answer. Uh, it's it's something I wish more recovering politicians and current politicians understood. At any rate, thank you so much, Bob. And, and now, Chris, on to other people's questions. Sure, and I'll just uh, remind our listeners that we are talking to Bob Ray, Canada's newly appointed ambassador for the United Nations, and you can ask a question by typing star, that's a little asterisk, and one on your phone. Uh, you can enter the queue and, and join our conversation. Um, I don't have anyone in the queue now, but I wanted to follow up on something uh, that you just you were just talking about, uh, Ambassador Ray, and that is the group that Canada is in when it comes up for a rotating seat on the Security Council, uh, for reasons of history, certainly at the end of World War II, uh, Canada was in the West European and others group, which uh, is is a tough block to be in because so many of the countries in that group are middle powers that uh, are fair contenders any time a seat comes up. It's been suggested a little bit in the press that, that Perhaps Canada should join the, the Latin American bloc and make it a more Western Hemisphere bloc. Uh, would you think that Canada would ever consider uh, not moving geographically, but maybe moving its bloc within the UN in order to uh, to better coordinate within its region? Um, 
I'll have to admit that I, I don't <laughs> I don't have a mandate to really say anything much about that except to say I'm pretty sure that everybody will want to look uh, at, at at what happened and try to figure out well you know how what's the best way to go forward. I do know on the question of our relationship in the Americas, I personally take that relationship very seriously. Uh, I think that uh, we've made steady progress in. Uh, by our leadership in the Lima Group, uh, by the work we've been doing with Caribbean countries, by our work in Haiti in particular, our relationships with Mexico. Um, we are a country of the Americas. I mean, for a whole variety of reasons, um, which history will will describe, we've seen ourselves looking to Europe or looking elsewhere. But I, I think we we need you know we need to fully embrace our um, our membership in the in the Amer- in the Americas. And that's who we are. Uh, so I think it, 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 it may lead to other changes, like the one you've described. I don't know. But I do know that uh, I, I will be spending a lot of time um, thinking about and working with uh, uh, other, other countries in the Americas and taking those relationships very, 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 very seriously. And I'm sure you will, because I know how committed you are, and I appreciate as a as someone who's, as you say, recovering politician, that you don't give up easily, which I think is very important. Um, but you mentioned Haiti, and Haiti is one of the countries in which Canada has, from time to time, been involved in, in peacekeeping. And for many Canadians, I think for many people outside Canada, peacekeeping is that quintessential Canadian contribution to the UN system, something that Lester Pearson, uh, Canada's former foreign minister and later um, and later prime minister, pioneered in response to the Suez crisis, um, and it has become a, some, something of a hallmark, the famous blue helmets that we associate with crises around the world. As you come into this uh, new role, how, how do you see Canadians' attitudes about peacekeeping evolving? And in, the, in a, a world that's become quite dangerous in a lot of places, has peacekeeping changed, and do we need to think about it differently now than we, we might have done 10 or 20 years ago? Well, the Peacekeeping Commission is something that Canada chairs, and I look forward very much to chairing that at the UN. Uh, it, it is a, a very critical um, legacy, if you like, of Canadian foreign policy going back to the, to the period after the war. But it's more than that. It, 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 peace and conflict is a critical uh, – it lies at the heart of the, of the mission of the United Nations. Um, I know there's been some comment about, well, Canadian troops aren't everywhere. And the answer to that seems to me is, well, there are a lot of different countries that are contributing troops, um, and some of them, you know, some, and, and, and they do it for important economic reasons. Um, and, and Canada has remained a, a, a very important, significant contributor to, to peacekeeping efforts around the world, uh, both financially and in terms of logistics and and other things. Um, but I, I think the broader mission of the United Nations to resolve local conflicts, I was talking about the, the conflict-based origin of every humanitarian situation. There, 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 humanitarian crises emerge because of political collapse, political failure, political conflict, political violence. So finding the solutions to that violence is, as I said, it's, a, it's the heart of what the United Nations is historically been all, all about, going back to the opening words of the, 
of the charter. Uh, and so, yeah, Canada's going to play a critical role. And, yes, it's in a lot of the situations we're being asked to keep the – people are being asked to keep a peace, but they're being asked to keep a peace which doesn't exist. Uh, and that's one of the central tensions, I think, in peacekeeping. It, it helps to have a political element to it as well that's looking at how to resolve the, the bases of the conflict. And that, I think, is something that needs to be built up, certainly in terms of our own thinking in Canada. And, and I and I look forward to seeing and discussing with people at the UN about, you know, how 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 we can contribute to that exercise more at the United Nations. Excellent. I, I have a question from Wilson Center Global Fellow and former U.S. diplomat Richard Sanders. Uh, Richard? Hello? Hello? Um, I'm sorry, I'm not getting through. You are. Richard, Richard, I can hear you. Yeah, we can hear you. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, my question for Ambassador Ray um, has to do with the Middle East. Um, um, certainly the media suggests that uh, Canada was unable to get its uh, seat on the Security Council because it was uh, viewed as being too close to Israel. That may or may not be a fair um, description of, uh, of, its, uh, of the result. Uh, but uh, the Mideast question, the, the Israel-Palestine question, has uh, kind of drifted away from the United Nations in recent years. Um, is there anything useful that can be done at the UN with regard to it? Well, I don't think it's ever very far from the UN. First of all, um, the United Nations uh, takes responsibility for the refugees, has and has done since since the late 1940s through through UNRWA. Um, I, I think the the resolutions on on uh, Israel Palestine are always a, a uh, uh, an important debate in the, at the heart of the United Nations. I, I think that Canada's position is, is has been very clear from the from the get go. We we have um, long supported the existence not the existence the security of the state of Israel uh, going back to 1947 48. Um, we've also I think been very constructive participants in every major effort at resolving uh, the disputes uh, going back to Suez and, and after um, through the war in 67 uh, George Ignatieff was the, at the at the Security Council when the resolution 242 was passed um, uh, my own dad was there during the what's called the Yom Kippur War uh, at the UN and very involved in discussions at that point. Um, it, it is a real, it's a, it's, it, it is a, a real challenge. Um, whatever position you take, you will be accused of being too friendly to one side or the other, one country or, uh, or the other. Um, uh, I think we, we've made it clear that we support, um, a two-state solution that Mr. Trudeau has been very clear about his position on with respect to the uh, potential uh, annexation of, uh, of territories occupied after 1967 and has indicated that he thinks any unilateral action would be a mistake. Uh, and I think he's right. Um, the, the, the path to, to, uh, to a peaceful resolution and to, 
being able to execute a solution is a, is among the most difficult paths in the world. It's it's proven to be to be enormously difficult. Um, I think I think Canada has probably paid a paid a, a price for its candor. I think we've been very candid about the fact that uh, we we don't. Um, we don't like to see the reemergence of anti-Semitism anywhere in the world. Um, we don't believe the solutions are easy. Uh, we don't believe that all the blame lies on one side or the other. Um, and we, we, we aspire to, and we, we are supportive of, uh, of, of the creation of a Palestinian state. We, we believe that that's a perfectly, uh, it should happen. Um, that would not be in contradiction to the existence of the state of Israel that would allow, you know, be with it. And back going back to uh, Madrid and Oslo and all the other international efforts that have been made, Canada has been, has been there and has been a, a partner and a, and a party to all those discussions. And, and we will continue to be. Thank you, Ambassador Ray. We have a question from Michael Waller, who's a member of the Wilson National Cabinet. Michael? Yes. Uh, thank you very much, Ambassador Ray, for your time this afternoon. This might be a bit of a delicate question, but um, you're an accomplished uh, diplomat. I'm sure you'll handle it gracefully. Um, in your work in and around the UN, could you compare and contrast um, uh, areas where uh, Canada's friendship with the United States is an asset on its balance sheet versus perhaps some areas, if any, where Canada's friendship with the United States may may present a little bit of a headwind for you. Thank you. <laughs> well, look, uh, I talked earlier about my my uh, my time in the United States. Um, our Canada's friendship with the United States is is uh, is foundational. Uh, it, it is deeply rooted, as, as President Kennedy said. You know, it's rooted in our history, in our geography, uh, and, and in our economies, and in our societies. Um, and so, it, it isn't. You know, it, it, we can't we can't tow ourselves out into the into another ocean and say, no, we're you know we're over now we're over here. We can't do that. Uh, we don't want to do that. Um, that doesn't mean we agree with uh, every every step that every American government takes, or that we uh, that we share, um, you know, every every uh, aspect of American uh, foreign policy. Not not at all. It, it, we have our differences, um, and we will we will continue to express those differences as, as diplomatically as we can. But I, I think people know what some of them what some of them are. Um, we, I have to say, I think the, the success in negotiating the, the most recent agreement uh, on, on trade is, has been significant um, and, and I think is a reflection of the fact that despite a lot of rhetoric that surrounded the discussions, uh, there are underlying principles of, uh, of, of the extent to which our economies are, are linked that you know are undeniable and in everyone's interest it's in america's interest in mexico's interest it's in our interest um you know look we you know for a long time you know canada was identified as part of the british empire um you talk about you know the the peacekeeping experience nasser would would not let 
you know, Canadian troops uh, initially was was very reluctant to let Canadian troops be part of peacekeeping in in uh, the Sinai because uh, the, the the troops were known as the Queen's Own Rifles and said, well, you know, we've been trying to get rid of the British Empire and you're part of it. So that was a challenge for us at, at one time. And and Mr. Pearson successfully, I think, over overcame those concerns. Um, we're we're um, we're a neighbor of the United States, uh, and in in many aspects of our lives, we're allies of the United States. We're also independent of the United States, and I think every American understands that. I mean, I, I, no country is more proud of its its own national identity than the United States. And so I think they'd understand that Canadians feel very proud of their national identity, and and it's a constant um, challenge for us. I think to sort of say, well, we're we're actually we're actually different, and we have our own views, but they're not they're not intended to be offensive. It's just intended to say we have a slightly different perspective based on our own historical experience. Um, thank you very much for that for that answer, and it, it reminds me of, of something that's always impressed me about you, Ambassador Ray, which is that you have a very broad ambit. You you seem to do equally well. Uh, thinking about academia, I know you were chancellor at uh, uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. You've done democracy assistance with the National Democratic Institute and the U.S. National Endowment for Democracy. You've been in provincial politics and federal politics, um, really taking on the challenges as they come forward. One thing, though, that I think uh, is very interesting about your background is your commitment to the arts. And the U.N. has, uh, over the many years, been a place where Artists have come where we've celebrated the variety of cultures around the world through music and so forth. How do you think Canadian culture can contribute at the United Nations? Is it something that you think uh, uh, can get a profile uh, in that forum in New York? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm uh, I, I'm very involved in cultural activity, music and and uh, literature and other other activities in Canada, and I'm, I'm delighted that uh, we're going to be in New York, which, uh, where I understand some music is occasionally played. Um, <laughs> look forward to, uh, to uh, you know, encouraging Canadian artists to come to, uh, uh, to, uh, to New York and, and around the world. I think our, our, we've seen an incredible um, explosion in the last 50 years of, uh, of Canadian uh, talent of all kinds. Um, uh, in the arts of, of all kinds, and um, it, it's been a wonderful thing to be part of in, 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 in my lifetime to see to see how this has just grown and, and, and made such a huge difference. So I look forward to it. But I, I want to assure anyone listening that I I will not be performing um, <laughs> at Carnegie Hall or anything. Don't, they have nothing here. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know whether that's reassuring or or whether we're missing out. Actually, um, I, I I had the the occasion to listen to an interview that you gave last week with one of the Canada Institute's advisory board members uh, and your former uh, parliamentary colleague Sergio Marchi. And one of the questions that he asked that's that I I want to ask you again here was a question about the future. Um, speaking not just to young Canadians, but also any young Americans, college students, and others who might be listening to this call, in the world that we live in, is is international affairs, uh, diplomacy, uh, a lost cause? 
is individual action better? You certainly see that uh, I, that kind of sentiment from some young people who get very frustrated with the UN and the difficulty of doing things internationally. Or maybe is this the, the right time to engage because of the enormity of the problems that we face? For young people, what, what, what would you, based on your career and, and what you've seen, suggest about uh, about careers in, in the international or even just the domestic political world? Well, I mean, I, I'm i uh, turning 72 in a couple of weeks, so I, I'm i aware of, of the passage of time. And, and But to be a young person today is just to be on the edge of so many extraordinary opportunities. Um, it's it's hard to overestimate them. And I, I see in this generation of, of, of young people that I've been teaching a lot at the University of Toronto, and uh, and meeting a lot of a lot of students and find that they're 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 super keen, super interested and engaged and doing more travel. This is before COVID, of course, but doing more travel and and that will come back. That will that will COVID's not going to last forever. I think a lot of people are overwhelmed by it at the moment. Um, and yeah, of course there are huge problems and and bureaucracies are are tough places to work uh, wherever you are. Uh, but you have to ter- try and turn them into human human instruments of understanding and, and, you know, just do your best to make them work on, on behalf of, of better causes and better things. I, I think, I think there's just so much to do. Uh, the challenges are huge, but the opportunities for, from a personal perspective are, are, are huge. And, and I think it's really important for people to just stay, uh, stay engaged and stay positive. I particularly think this in terms of talking to people now about you know the job market being poor and all that. Um, don't uh, don't take uh, a job a job rejection or not getting work at the first knock on the door as a as a sign of personal failure. I think that's the biggest mistake we can make. Um, it's objectively it's a tough time out there, so it's 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 not going to be easy. But there's still a lot of things that that people can uh, can do, and if, if the UN didn't exist, we would have to create it. We would have to find again the ability to look beyond our own um, nation states and understand that there are some things that are bigger than all of us. Uh, the global economy is global. Uh, the the global pandemic is global. Uh, climate change is is global. So you look at these these situations. You say we we have to cooperate and talk to each other in order to be able to find solutions. So I, that that would be my my message. Well, it's a bracing challenge, but I think one that um, that really resonates with me, and I know will resonate with a lot of our listeners. Bob Ray, I want to thank you for your time today and for sharing with us your perspective on what's next at the UN. It's a very long list. Um, I expect you'll be very busy, but uh, if you ever want to come back, we'd love to have you come back and and share with us your experiences. Uh, You've always got friends at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars in Washington. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, coming back and looking forward to hearing more about uh, how the Institute is doing. I'll stay in close touch. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And ladies and gentlemen, this concludes our our Ground Truth Briefing at the Woodrow Wilson Center today. Uh, If you have have an interest, we'll be putting this recording up on our website, and you can re-listen to this conversation anytime. Thank you very much, and have a nice day. And thank you. This does conclude today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines, and thank you for your participation.